It's enlightenment and shit. How you doing? <laughs> enlightenment is cool. You know, I, I rated a seven out of ten. Yeah. Wait, yeah. Wait, why not a ten out of ten? Brings I don't it know. down. Because it's so popular. Nothing, <laughs> nothing. Nothing popular is is really ten out of ten. You think just because it's overrated? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you got your your expectations up, and then when you actually experience, it's like, yeah, it's, it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Postwave. You're here with Eric and Trevor, and today we're talking about enlightenment. Just a quick disclaimer that we're two musicians and composers who like to talk about a bunch of topics that are sometimes slightly beyond our wheelhouse. If we say anything that's factually incorrect, or even if you just disagree with us, we really love if you send us an email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com and uh, let us know. Self is a model of. <laughs> Shut up. What is true? Self... So, as I see it, the self is a model that the brain creates of itself because your brain and your consciousness is basically a model of everything that's in the world. And so, at a certain point, it becomes advanced enough to make a model of itself. And that is what we perceive as the self. From what I can understand, mm, the self is a model it creates of itself. That seems kind of recursive. Yeah, and I think I think recursive is, I think recursion is definitely a a big component of it, and I think it's a big component of of thought itself. We can we can think about our thoughts and we can examine them in a way that's definitely recursive, and I think the self kind of works the same way because we we see a world populated by objects right and we notice that we ourselves are an object and so we need to create the same model that we create for other objects for ourselves. because we for some reason have this perception that we are separate from the world mm. which makes sense from an evolutionary perspective right we, yeah. we would in order to preserve ourselves we need to think that we are separate and that we have control over what happens to us hmm. and in some sense we do we've we've talked about this obviously but the reason i think the primary reason we have the self is for self-preservation purposes and it's just, it's just hmm. an artifact of evolution and, and of the brain wow okay so when we start talking about the self when we start trying to describe it from nothing first place we go is 
this sort of duality, this I perceive myself as an object to exist in contrast with the other objects that are around me. Yeah, yeah. And again, this is this is based on the the perception which most most people like Ramdas and, and Sam Harris and, and people who, who have really studied Buddhism and, and the psychedelic experience, most people like that would say that the self is, is an illusion. The self is an illusion. Could you explain a little bit more about what you think that means? Yeah, so there, there's this whole meditation practice in Buddhism called Dzogchen, and it's based on recognizing the illusion of the self. So in, in normal mindfulness, which most, maybe not most people, but a lot of people probably have ex- some exposure to, you focus on something like the breath and try to let it completely occupy your mind and not think of anything else and notice it in as much detail as possible. And in Dzogchen, the object of that meditation is the illusion of the self. So if you, the, the basic idea is to try to turn attention on itself. You ask, what is paying attention? Hmm. it seems like there's something that's paying attention to something else right right there's this central it's like this little person up in your brain i always think about the movie inside out where they're watching the screen of what's happening and it's all her emotions you know inside her head Mm -hmm. but there's not a screen you're just looking out through your eyes Mm. there's no like secondary thing that's happening it's just the world is appearing hmm Wow, and and even that language right there that you are looking out through your eyes sort of implies a separateness, but it's it's on a certain level it's like everything that you're experiencing is the field of vision. It is all of the things that you perceive and that is you that you are perceiving. Yeah, there's no one who is seeing, there is just seeing. Yes. <laughs> wild stuff and so and so that is maybe what you mean by the illusion of the self yeah uh-huh and, uh okay wow because because i i always kind of shy away from that language of the illusion of the self because in a certain sense the self is all that there is all that you can perceive and the only thing that you know for certain is true um and so it seems funny to say the illusion that the self is an illusion, but when it framed that way, it kind of makes sense. Yeah, well, I think, I think you're confusing the self with consciousness, because consciousness hmm. is all we know for sure. Even if, even if everything that we're seeing around us is an illusion, we're in a simulation, the fact that we're conscious of something can't be an illusion. As far as, as, far as I can tell, the, the seeing things and experiencing things itself can't be an illusion, if, even if the things that we're seeing and experiencing aren't real, whatever that means. Hmm. That's, that's, that's interesting. I, t- to me, it seems that consciousness and the self are inextricable be- be- because at, at any point that you are perceiving, you can also then from there make the inference that there is someone or something that is perceiving and so you can always derive the self from experience from awareness yeah i can, I can see what you're getting at but but through certain meditation practices like zogchen you can actually see that the self isn't a necessary component to, to consciousness you can have awareness without a self appearing hmm. 
interesting. It's uh, because an emergent property of consciousness, but not a central property. I wouldn't say it's emergent. Again, I think it's just kind of an evolutionary artifact. Oh, I, I hate that terminology. I, I will never, never get behind the, the message that consciousness is just a fluke uh, accident of evolution. No, no, no. Again, you're confusing consciousness with the self. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that. Well, <laughs> the self is, is an artifact of, of biology in a different way than consciousness if, if consciousness is indeed an artifact. But I don't, I don't think... It dep- okay, it depends what we mean by fluke versus artifact there. So <laughs> it's, it's possible that consciousness doesn't have any evolutionary advantage. It's just something you get when brains get advanced enough or if panpsychism is true, then it's just already there, <laughs> right? Uh, uh-huh. But yeah, I, we have to be careful not to confuse consciousness with the self. And I do, I do, I do wonder how many people kind of consider those two things to be the same thing, mm. and if those people are actually more enlightened than people who claim to have gone through the process <laughs> of ego death and and everything. I, I don't I don't think so probably, but I, I I'm just very curious how people how quote quote well not quote unquote I'm very curious how the normies think about this kind of thing. <laughs> the normies. <laughs> the normies. Oh man. <laughs> um, so okay, so this is this is interesting. Um, this ties into our inspiration for this episode, which was the talk done by Ram Das, where you know, he's a very very. Uh, great entertainer i never realized this uh, this was actually the first lecture i'd listened to him but you know he his sense of timing his uh awareness of the crowd and the rapport that he creates is really really something to experience um but he talks about multiple different planes of consciousness as he understands them different modes of perceiving the world and he sort of ranks them on like wokeness, you know, how, how enlightened is this perspective? Um, but uh, interestingly, he, he, he never says one is more real than any of the others. It's just some are more enlightened. Um, and he starts on the least enlightened is what we were just talking about. The duality, the, I am this form in the world and there are other forms. So how do we understand the world that way? Um, and then the next step that he takes is to say that, um, we are the same, made of the same stuff, you know, I am, I am conscious and you over there, even though you are a separate entity, are, uh, uniquely conscious in the exact same way. Yeah, I think at one point he talks about we're all manifestations of the same state of being. Yeah, so that's the next one, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, oh, oh, sorry. No, that is the one, the, the state of being. Um, and then, then the next one up is we're actually all the same being, not the same state of being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always... I'm not, I'm not sure about that. I mean, it does kind of get to the whole panpsychism thing. If there's If there's some conscious field underlying everything then mm. it does make sense to think that we're all the same being. But I think if consciousness is localized to the brain, that doesn't really make sense. I mean, mm. there, there's, 
it's true that your body and your brain are not separate from the rest of the universe, but I don't know if it makes sense to say that everyone is having the same experience. Or I, don't, is, I don't know if that's how he would put it. Mm. Well, the way I understand this, because I've definitely seen this to be true in a certain sense, is that you can be certain that you exist and your existence is what one would call consciousness. and you can know that any existence is always going to share certain properties that you are experiencing. These properties include things like timelessness, you know, the, the tangibility of ideological uh, existence, the presentness of the, the current moment. And that... Uh that exists at the core of any sort of experience and you can then know that anything else that is experiencing is also experiencing those things yeah well what do you okay what, what do you mean by timelessness and then you said something like ideological something what was mm. can, can you can you explain a little bit more what you mean by those yeah ideological um just like the, the tangibility of ideas, you know, that things existing on an ideological landscape is a real form of existing as opposed to ideas being intangible and the only real thing being the physical forms that you perceive outwardly. Huh. And uh, that, that sort of experience, the uh, realness of things can exist in this in this timeless state you know it, it's not you know everything over time deteriorates but in the present moment it exists and that that present moment is characterized by being outside of time you know eternity as we've talked about the sense of eternity in that you are existing now and forever because uh time is not passing yeah, that's a whole that's a whole can of worms. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I. I well, it's interesting because we're talking about how everyone's experience is the same, but I feel like that's not at all how most people experience life. Hmm. Even even if that is true on a on a on a deeper level, I th- yeah, I feel like I feel like almost no one experiences their life as timeless. Hmm. Yeah, it, it, it's tricky because. In so many ways, it seems like the experience of enlightenment is just like, it's, it's nothing grandiose. It's just describing what it is to exist. And then the big question gets, you know, how did we get to the situation where what we seemingly experience on the surface is so drastically different from this enlightened perspective? Yeah, well, it's actually something people say within Dzogchen which is the the illusion of the self is is right on the surface or the the reality of the illusion of the self is right on the surface and you you lose the illusion of the self in in a flow state right if you're engrossed in your work and you just forget that time is passing and you're not thinking about anything other than the work like that is that is the death of your ego you just don't think about it that way and i feel like a lot of this has to do with the fact that the the state of enlightenment is 
kind of right there all the time. He just takes a lot of thinking and learning for whatever reason. I mean, you could blame our modern society or whatever, but we've, we've kind of lost touch with it or it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of effort to, to get there potentially. Hmm. Okay. And now that's the question. Like, does, does it, <laughs> um, that I, th- that was so interesting to me about, uh, Ram Dass's talk here. Cause just for a little bit of background, Ram Dass, uh, a Westerner, uh, went to Harvard. Is it, I believe Harvard. He was um, a professor at Harvard, oh. like a psychology professor. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, he and, he and Timothy Leary were some of the first people in the 60s, definitely 60s, maybe 50s to, to start doing research into psychedelics. Hmm. And they ended up leaving Harvard kind of, I mean, that the, they, they were, they didn't leave. They got <laughs> kicked out, I think, <laughs> um, very various things to do with, with the psychedelics stuff. But yeah, hmm. Richard, Richard Alpert went to very India and various other places in Asia and, and became kind of a spiritual leader and just had this whole new life. It's a really, it's a really crazy story. Just how he completely transformed himself. Mm. It's always interesting. Same thing with Terrence McKenna, just listening to someone talk. who You just know has done a fuck ton of drugs. It's <laughs> <laughs> <Just> like, <laughs> and you know, along, along with the medi- the meditation and stuff, but like, it's like, this is, this is what that does to someone's brain. Mm. And they, they are, they are just kind of this embodiment of, of that experience, you know? Mm. Yeah. So what, what have you seen? Yeah. So, so yeah. Um, so he, in this talk, talks about how he went to India and uh, got sort of taken in by this guru, um, became very, very invested and very involved um, in this sort of becoming spiritual, becoming enlightened, and uh, to the point of, you know, like a being so obsessed with this person that he starts to hate everyone else who takes time away uh that he could have been ha- having with this other guy and uh and uh he he mentions a, a moment where he you know breaks down and and starts weeping at at the feet of his guru um and uh, i don't know it is it, just a such a, a rich uh pungent experience you know it's like can you can you even conceive of what it would be like to invest yourself so deeply in something to be that uh that that affected yeah i mean no no i can't imagine that i mean yeah what what it would take to to go study meditation and and this whole spiritual practice that in depth is just an experience i have no almost no reference point for i mean i've done i've done meditation but for no more than 20 minutes at a time mm-hmm. once a day so it's it's yeah it's just a a totally different way of living yeah so he talks about how he gets uh you know he, he's going around wearing wearing the the dress the robes and the the, the beads and kind of floating around with this sort of uh vibrant energy in him that uh, the, the the locals can see and recognize and how people are uh not accepting his money because he's so holy and just like mm-hmm. giving him stuff for free and he's sort of putting on this persona 
of being so so darn holy and then like you were saying when he comes back to the states of um you know wanting to stay in that state of of outward enlightenment and yet uh feeling that grating against the his life to the point that uh that he would start to feel resentful and like he needs to push everything away uh not engage with any experience so it to so as to retain this sort of pure state of being yeah yeah and he said he could kind of become too divine and not human enough or he said he said one of his teachers kind of gave him the advice that you can't lose your humanity when you pursue these spiritual paths that ideally lead to the divine Mm. i think it also goes to that you can't you can't get too sure of yourself you can't get too cocky i the i i really thought what he said at the beginning of the, the talk was beautiful about he what was it he who speaks does not know and he who knows does not speak yeah because but i think the implication being that he who knows knows that he doesn't know enough to speak it's Wait, or that, that speaking that he who knows knows that he doesn't know enough to speak right and right, that right. what what actually is true can't be put into words mm, yes 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 daddy okay <clears throat> so he uh has this vast uh enlightenment sort of experience and comes back and eventually starts to learn that, that you know his his deeper learning is maybe don't take anything so seriously don't take any of this enlightenment stuff too seriously right cuz i i think his his kind of argument is that you might you might miss the point you might get too too invested in this to the point that you're losing the benefit that's supposed to come from it or or you're losing the 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 end goal and i think actually something something else people talk about with meditation is don't do it for the benefit do it because this is i don't i don't know it's a, it's a hard it's a hard line to to walk but again if you get if you get too tied to the outcome and your thoughts are constantly, this is working, this is good, look at me, then you've already lost sight of, of what the whole project is. Mm. Yeah, so this, this, this to me speaks to something that we touched on in the Ted Achacoso episode where we uh, examined this monologue by this brilliant guy, Ted Achacoso, um, where he's talking about Zhou Chen and... He mentions there are a couple different steps on the road to Dzogchen enlightenment um, where he says the sutra is rejecting the poison. That's kind of Ram Das going around in the robe, uh, not eating the sugary things and doing yoga and uh, looking all holy. And uh, then eventually you kind of have to 
realize you have to you have to engage with the world and so then he says the tantra is uh using that poison as a medicine and then, what do you think he means by that i um using it as a medicine so engaging intentionally and carefully with certain aspects of the world around you knowing that it's poison and also knowing uh it's it's necessary you know it's uh it can enrich your life to a deeper extent than just shunning everything you know because because if 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 you if you separate yourself from the world then you you wither away you know you you need the the grounding the contact with the world to 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 continue to grow and live yeah and i think i think it also goes to the the way to deal with hardship is not to push it away or try to just distract yourself with things it's to face it full on and not become detached from it but people a lot of the people a lot of the time people will use the word interested like become interested in your pain if you've been sitting there for two hours and your butt's starting to hurt, become interested in how it hurts. Right. And again, yeah, don't make any attempt to make it go away. Just sit with it. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting too. And it's like, where where where's the motivation to not take action to make the pain go away as well? You know, like, what are you trying to achieve there by? sitting there intentionally not acting (laughs) and i think uh that that's where get into the next the next level of enlightenment if you will or if if ted will uh which is uh ingesting the whole poison which is to just say you know if if your butt's hurting move god damn it do it do it if you want to you know (laughs) is that what he says Oh no, I'm I'm extending this metaphor, but he d- he does say he does say that uh, Zog Chen is ingesting the whole poison, which I take right. to, to mean engaging fully with life in every regard at every capacity. And you know, this, like wh- why would you why would you go through the mental torture of not moving your butt when it's starting to get sore? Is in pursuit of some sort of uh, some sort of image of enlightenment. Like, what does that achieve? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it's different for different people, but the I don't, I don't think it's so much just the ability to tolerate physical pain. Again, I think it's the ability to separate yourself from it, while at the same time, well, it, it it's interesting because the at least in Zogchen, a lot of it is focused on the cutting through the illusion of the self, Mm. but it's also focused on not identifying with your pain, Mm. right? The pain, the pain is not you. You are the, the pain is an appearance in your consciousness. Interesting. So you, you might go through this mental exercise intentionally to make yourself more readily aware of that fact. Right. So, yeah, it's so interesting because it's like, from a certain outside perspective perspective you can scoff at any of these approaches you can say well that's ridiculous why would you ever do that but um i think there are things to be gained things to learn from any given experience like this any any approach and there's a time and a place for it 
yeah it's it's really this is one of those things where i think for a lot of people it takes a psychedelic experience to get them interested in it Mm. because if you yeah if you've never had the kind of experience or you've never meditated before it can all just seem like woo woo new age (laughs) kind of stuff yeah and I think I think a lot of people need some kind of dramatic thing to happen that shows them mm. that there's something there. I mean, do you think do you think you would have started thinking about all the stuff if you hadn't done any psychedelics? Well, so here's the thing. Yes, I I in fact think that I had been thinking about these things, which is why my first psychedelic experience was so uh, wrought with opportunity for realizing the truth of these things. Um, Certainly, I think that psychedelics, as I've said before, uh, those first experiences really nailed home to me the reality of experience and that uh, helped me to take things more seriously that I might have otherwise just sort of toyed with for a long time. Interesting. Yeah, it does make everything seem very real and very significant Mm -hmm. all at once. Yeah, and uh, man, I don't know, impermanent, permanent at the same time, like the sense of of the present moment just being for eternity, and at the same time, this fragility of this is what you have right now, this is your life, and eventually you will die, and you, you are dying right now, every single passing moment is a lost opportunity and what are you going to do about it? <laughs> Dang. <laughs> yeah. I thought what he said about God being the way forms relate to all other forms was really beautiful. What did, what did he say? Can you remind me about that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think, I think this has to do with everyone kind of having the same experience and everything being all part of the same thing and that what you could call god is just the way that everything in the world works together and is is related and i think this is where buddhists would use the word interpenetrate Mm. everything is everything is is connected to everything else Mm. and yeah you, you could not exist with the atmosphere you could not exist without your parents you couldn't exist without plants all that all that stuff absolutely yeah and the uh that, that does that sort of get into the sense of when you're looking into someone else's eyes starting to recognize that 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 thing looking back at you that entity that living living thing is you yeah there's actually no separation and and we've talked about this before i think in our alan watts episode but people people will get the opposite impression sometimes like it's all me or I don't exist. <laughs> I mean, I think I think the the where that points is that neither of them is true because you you can't be everything because you don't exist. Like there's there's only one thing and it's not called you. You would be the right word for it. Hmm. Interesting. Or you could conversely take it in the opposite way and say that both are true. Yeah, but if both things are true and it's a contradiction, then it seems like <laughs> neither of them can be true, unless I mean this you know, contradictory stuff like this is 
found a lot in Zen and, and Buddhism. Mm. Yeah, I think that's part of that's part of the that's part of the, of the beauty of it because that's part of how you express things that can't be expressed in words. Yeah, absolutely. You say this this contradiction kind of shows what it's like. And that, after all, isn't the fact of our existence in any capacity at all already a contradiction? How's that? Because, like, how the fuck did we get here, you know? <laughs> how did things happen? How, how, how are things? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, that, that is a question. <laughs> That's a question. <laughs> yeah. This is one of the things, actually, going back a couple episodes to uh, the one where Jordan Peterson was debating Matt Delante. One of the things that I wish I'd said, I, I don't feel like I articulated myself very well in that episode, but one of the things that Peterson said that I thought was really actually insightful was how he talked about you know that the baseline for credibility for believing anything is just that all of these things that we see here everything you could possibly know about our experience today all of the things that seem so tangible that they just started existing for some reason yeah, like that's that's the baseline that we accept uh, for any sort of logical model that we build of of the world around us, and so it's sort of this uh, incomprehensibility at the core of our existence. Does he make that as an argument for believing in God or? Or bringing God to any of this, or what, what's his what's his point in in saying that? His point was in an attempt to outline uh, that Matt Dillahunty's knowledge of the world, his certainty in the things that he was saying uh, about the nature of of skepticism and logic and the things you can know about the world were actually limited and there are certain assumptions that Matt was making about about the world. Right. Well the the problem with the the idea that I, I still don't I still don't get what he's trying to imply by saying that everything we know or think we know is based on the fact that the universe exists in the first place, because that just seems kind of like tautology. Like what? What is that? What is that actually saying? <laughs> I I may have misspoke. Just just saying that everything that exists just started happening for some reason, and that we just accept that at the core of any any logical explanation of how we got here. Right. I mean, it is it is almost by definition beyond science because it's not something that we can test unless, as far as we know. I mean, the if we discovered that we're living in a multiverse, that would that would give us an explanation because in that case, every universe with every possible set of physical constants exists an infinite number of times. Yeah. And, and then you get into the, the, the same problem multiplied infinite yeah. fold is how did it, how did all of those get to be there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it's also one of those things where we're asking a question that doesn't have an answer because we're, we're perfectly capable of forming English sentences as questions that don't actually have answers, even though they, they mm. make sense to us intuitively. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but then this just just tying back to why why this came up in the first place is, you know, that things 
uh, chems at their core seemingly be contradictions and that any any understanding that is at its core a contradiction is entirely reasonable yeah i'm I'm tempted to bring up goodles and complete this theorem but i don't know if it's entirely relevant <laughs> well um, no yeah let's go there i think yeah I think well it's the whole the, any any system can't prove its own consistency hmm. you know there there could be there could be contradictory statements written within that system, like the statement is false that, that break it. Right. And maybe maybe those contradictions themselves show us something interesting about the nature of intelligence and consciousness and and all that stuff. In the same in the same self referential way as the the brain or consciousness might work. If you're enjoying what you're listening to so far and you want to support us somehow, there's lots of ways you can do that. You can go follow us on Facebook or Instagram or visit us online at postwavepodcast.com or send us a nice email at postwavepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on your podcasting platform of choice. We're on pretty much everyone out there. Give us a nice review if you're on a platform that supports that or a five-star rating. Thanks for listening. Uh, so one, one thing I wanted to talk about in regards to this Ramdas lecture is compassion because he, he he speaks really beautifully about love and of lo- loving the world around you being in love with everyone around you mm-hmm. and he he has this quote he says i have begun to fall in love with the universe and it's hard to talk about that Hmm. What do you think he means by that? I mean, he talks about how, you know, like you can get, uh, fall in love with someone and you say that person makes you feel what it is to be love. And, you you sort of uh, cloister up with them and get married and you shut out the rest of the world and you just spend all your time together. And then eventually you say, I'm, I'm going to go up, I'm going to go to the store. And you look over at the cash register and it happens again. And you, you look into their eyes and you fall in love and you see that, that experience of, of, of you, you feel that you are love. You know, that, that sort of transcendent uh, being awash of value, of, of, of meaningfulness and uh feeling that the the whole the whole universe is that way yeah well it's interesting you bring up that seeing cashier example because didn't he also say that romantic love implies separateness and maybe maybe when you see someone hot across the room your your first thought is we are one there is no separation between you (laughs) but i feel like most people are just like oh i want to be with that person they seem cool (laughs) Uh huh. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. No. <laughs> I I feel that. And he does say it. He does say that. Uh, 
that sort of romantic life. Uh, r- romantic love is uh, rich with drama, and you might want to hang around there and experience that kind of that kind of experience, just because there's such limitless potential for exciting drama to happen. Mm-hmm. And just just for the the rush, it's and it's a lot of time people are in it for the wrong reasons. You know, it's selfish and and they just want to get something out of the relationship they don't it's not the selfless kind of compassionate love that he's talking about mm-hmm. and then uh the, the love he's talking about is is where where you experience love and and the, the meaningfulness of of your your experience and that uh you you see the, the the profound beauty of of that person whoever it is and maybe you can get to the state where you feel that and you see that in everyone yeah yeah i mean i, th- I think that's the goal you can totally be romantically involved with someone and still experience that kind of that kind of love and have it have it kind of propagate to everyone else in your life but mm-hmm easier easier said than done yeah and he talks about how you know in in that that love uh when it you know at first it's uh presented as romantic love but you know it, it is transcends transcendent unconditional love but um it becomes impractical to collect the lover as he says to when you feel that love want to keep them with you all the time because if you start to feel that all the time, then uh, then what are you gonna do? Like create a uh, a polyamorous commune out in, out in the middle of the the woods or something? <laughs> it's like that one episode of Rick and Morty where Rick fucks a planet. <laughs> Weren't there two <laughs> episodes where he fucks a planet? Are there two episodes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. One is the like the the organism, the hive mind organism, Unity. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking of. But I forgot there was another one. Yeah, it wasn't as, the second one wasn't as good. Yeah. <laughs> I I've been rewatching it. <laughs> Brings back <clears throat> see you boulder memories. Yeah, was, yeah. That was the time. That was the time. <laughs> I don't know. Have you ever have you ever experienced that kind of love in a in a stranger maybe? You just look into their eyes and you say, holy, like, words fail you? No, can't say I have. I mean, not a total stranger. I have I have tried to make eye contact with people more. Hmm. What's that experience I, been like for you? Uh, I mean, it's intense. I mean, especially as much as I've thought about eye contact within this kind of discussion. I'm just very aware of how intense it is. And our, our brain is so keyed into it. I mean, it's something we've been doing with other people for literally our entire evolution yeah right and so it's just a very yeah it's a, it's a very primal very direct kind of connection you know and it's it's such a it's just such a normal thing for a lot of people mm. but it you know it's, it's different for for different people different people have different comforts levels with comfort levels with eye contact and it varies between cultures too like i i, re- I learned this semester that that in in western culture especially it's it you should you should try to make eye contact most of the time. Mm-hmm. Means different things in different cultures, right? I mean, 
and in the animal kingdom a lot of time it's it's seen as an act of aggression you know <laughs> it's either <laughs> it's either i'm gonna fight you or i'm gonna fuck you yeah yeah <laughs> no I, I i uh i don't know if you you recall but i definitely had a renaissance of realizing i could look in people's eyes when i was in boulder there's a, a period that that was a huge revelation for me and the the things that i would see in people's eyes looking looking for that connection looking for recognition you know um just strangers on the street and some of the time you know a, a lot of the time because of uh, our our culture is there's uh, a lot of people just will not meet your eye but um I don't know. It felt like I was training myself to to catch people's eyes, and I got really good at it. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a beautiful recognition that would happen, and even a couple instances that completely floored me. Just momentary uh, connections that went so deep and so ah it was like i i cannot put it them into words it was as if in an instant worlds were generated birthed between myself and this stranger and we shared this awareness of these entire universes that existed between us and that those universes were themselves a language of shared things that we knew about ourself as this uh transcendent dual entity damn <laughs> i take it this is after you chipped for the first time this was yes um yeah no I, I would say that the time that i did two tabs of acid which was the same time that you your first experience of on mm-hmm. acid um there was uh in the wake of that is where the revelation came to me about eye contact. Interesting. So yeah, I, one of the big takeaways for me from this Ram Dass lecture was, and he talks about these different planes of consciousness, the uh, duality of you know yourself separate from that other entity, the unity of... Um, he, he brings in astrology of like everyone, there's only 12 entities in the world, um, and then he says, but really, if you go a level above that, then there's only only the one entity and it's all you. And then above that, none of it actually exists at all. And one of the big takeaways for me is that all of these planes of existence are true to some extent. You know, there's There's reality in each of them. And... They're not. Uh, they're not a hierarchy necessarily. They're. They're all truth. They're truths of different sizes. But sometimes, sometimes the smaller truth is the more relevant truth. I'm tempted to quote Rick and Morty again, but I, I can't remember the exact. <laughs> <line>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, way to bring me back to back 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 Sorry. to back to Earth. No. No. <laughs> I expected you to actually say the line. You didn't say the line. <laughs> what line? I can't remember. It's it's like they're they're watching interdimensional cable, and Jerry's on there for some reason, and he's like, "You speak the truth to." 
Sometimes, sometimes the big true true, true. true. <laughs> different, <laughs> the different true, true. than the small true true or something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, fair enough. <clears throat> okay, this has been Postwave. <laughs> no, I, I think I think what you said goes back to this idea of contradictions being at the root of a lot of what reality actually is or at least at the root of our human interaction with reality because we don't actually have the capacity or the language to to deal with it at least right now and i i do yeah i do think all these all these ways of thinking about reality are imperfect ways that each get at different aspects of what's actually happening Mm. so a wild world dang i just thought of about (laughs) if if there's a multiverse or if the many world many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics is true every possible form of consciousness exists uh-huh <laughs> like like i mean our brain our brain is just one possible manifestation of consciousness mm-hmm. and there's probably i mean an infinite number of other ones and if there's a multiverse or if the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics is true all those different states of consciousness exist somewhere Mm. Which is a little, like it's a, it's a little crazy. Sure is. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I feel like, in a certain sense, like I I don't know how literally I take the whole uh, parallel worlds sort of thing, like all these different multiverses happening in tandem with each other, and they're all equally tangibly real at the same time. You just happen to be in one of them. I don't I don't necessarily see that as holding a lot of water in a literal sense, but I think the kernel of truth there is that if you look at the fact that there is something right now, that implies that there is always going to be something some when. And so uh if you if you recognize that and see the uh way things change and deteriorate over time and it seems like we're in this time scale that eventually was is going to become protracted and uh and come up against a limit um but there's always going to be something and there's going to be new generation of, of life and vitality and complexity of idea that's always going to be central to existence. And so at some place in space-time, there's always going to be new things happening. And I think there is the truth of, of the many worlds, because you know, every permutation will perpetually be played out some, at some point. Yeah, I mean, I think the many worlds versus the other inter- interpretations of quantum mechanics, it is it is philosophy, but it is primarily physics. Mm-hmm. Right? It's, it's philosophy of physics, so. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, obviously, as I've said before, Sean Carroll is my main guy, so I kind of trust what he says about <laughs> many worlds being the, the <laughs> most logical. Uh, your, your main man. Yeah. 